ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro. We're back with the amazing Eche Fatum with an interesting episode. This one is decided by popular vote in the newly made philosophy channel of the Neuro Discord. We asked, what do you want to talk about in terms of philosophy? Because if you have an expert, you can ask them all kinds of things. And it being the internet and our community being very smart, people voted for butts. So we're going to try to tackle that topic. It's a big topic, so we're going to have to try to work our way around it and see what we can do about it. But yeah, how are, how are we going to break this down, dude? What do you what do you do when you open up the floor to the community to decide and they choose butts? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think there's a lot of things to talk about that are butt related but it's not my usual topic, so it's not really the kind of philosophy I'm mostly interested in, but we'll see where it goes and what there is to talk about in terms of butts. Hmm. Um, so I want to start with um, the an adaptation to the usual Agent Smith disclaimer. So not everything I'm talking about here is... Um, I'm not an expert on everything I'm talking about here. I'm especially not an expert on the philosophy of butts. I'm not sure if there are experts on that topic. I haven't looked up if there are some philosophers that just study butts and nothing else. Uh, it wouldn't... I wouldn't put it past people to do that. So that being said, um, there's one big difference when I talk about things... Um, to Agent Smith. Um, Agent Smith is very good at being considerate of the different views when talking about things and making it not political to either side. That's not something I can do or will do, so I'm pretty biased in all my opinions and that will show every once in a while. Um, but it's important. Yeah, I mean, to... they do say there are two sides to every butt. There's a left side and a right side. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, that being said, I find it important not to make this philosophy talk um, in a gatekeeping way. So I wanted to keep it as easy and understandable for people as possible. And probably talking about butts makes philosophy a bit more relatable to people than talking about um, epistemology or about ethics in general so i think that's a good thing to to kind of get the conversation going um but one thing that's important to me is not to become cynical about topics so when even if i talk about something that i uh, a philosophy i don't necessarily agree with I, I want to present it as it was presented at the time and and being serious about it Yeah, so all that being said, I think we should, can start with one interesting distinction in philosophy, which is um, the difference be between could and should. So the question there is, if you could talk about buts, which I definitely can, does that imply that I should talk about buts, which I'm not 100% sure about? Or on the other hand, if you're um, forced to talk about buts, which would be the should, I should talk about butts by popular vote. Does that mean I could uh, or I can talk about butts in a meaningful way? 
And also in a way that uh, follows the TOS of Twitch. Please don't end my career. Thank you. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll try my best. Yeah. So all that being said, let's talk about bots. And first in philosophy, it's all about what is a bot. So we're going to look at some different definitions. So I have uh, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, which presents with a bunch of different meanings for bot. Um, so a bot is the large or thicker end part of something. Um, it can also be a uppercut of a pork shoulder or a reminder of a cigarette. Remainder. Remainder. I'm, I'm not a native English speaker with shows every once in a while. Um, it can be a target in shooting, apparently. Did you have to... Or a large... Or a large what? A large cask, especially for wine or beer. Oh. Didn't know that one. Um, also, there's uh, the term of being the uh, subject of abuse, being the butt of the joke. Yeah, so there's a range of different topics we could talk about already. And we don't have to to focus on butts as in the thing we sit on and could fill a whole episode with that. But I kind of think that when people voted for butts, they wanted to hear about um, the thing we sit on. So let's talk about that for a little. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I, the, the one thing I, I, I came up with that's interesting to talk about and is not or is TOS friendly is kind of the history of um, what kind of butts we like socially. And there's been some range like the um, ideal form of a butt has changed over time quite a bit. And it used to be that we we liked rounder, fuller butts because that showed that a people was well fed, a person was well fed. And then we shifted towards really skinny, tiny butts in late 20th century. And now we're kind of getting back to, to big butts. Probably based on hip hop lyrics. Everyone knows the song. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that also has an effect. You could also say the extent to which someone's skin is tanned by the sun. That has shifted in a similar way because that can give indications about health and social status. And uh, it's kind of come around the other way where I think in a lot of cultures and locations, it was desirable to be less tanned because that means that you weren't needing to work outside as much, which usually indicated a higher status. But then in the more modern capacity, tan skin has like come back into fashion again. So it does seem like fashion has its trends that ebb and flow. It's not 100% consistent across time of what people consider to be the most desirable presentation of butts or tanness or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so there's always an up and down or a thick and thin that the butts go through. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. 
Yeah, the the other topic, I'm I'm not sure how TOS friendly this is, so I'm I'm trying to to tiptoe my way around it. Um, is um, in a sexual capacity, um, the the way we see about has changed over time, and things are um, considered normal or not normal based on social conventions. And this is also something that is um, has gone with time, and we're currently in a time where it's really taboo to talk about, which is interesting because the has it's this hasn't been a lot around for too long, or it has been during the Middle Age, and then with the Enlightenment, it kind of went back to well, just do what whatever feels good to you, and now we're we're turning back to that Middle Age kind of mentality where some things are not to be talked about. Yeah, if I could give a smaller example, I think in the 60s, that sort of free love period was probably more open about talking about butts, whereas we've swung back in the other uh, direction in the 80s and 90s and aughts. Yeah, that's a really good comparison. And interestingly, um, since we'll be talking about um, Epicurus, besides the butts, um, the period during the 1960s was heavily influenced by Epicurean philosophy, and we'll be talking about that a bit later on. So it's kind of the do what is good for you um, kind of philosophy really comes down to, to Epicurus's teachings, at least in the Western canon. And I would hope that during this discussion, we can find out why. Because I think you uh, previously were saying that you were excited about discussing a lot of his philosophy, but he's not one of the household names of philosophers. Yeah, I think he he is like his philosophy is well known these days. And he had influenced many thinkers that we think of as great thinkers these days. Um, one of the main problem is that most of his writings got lost over time. So we only have really little of Epicurus's writing that still remains today, which makes it perfect um, if you're ever asked for a school assignment to talk about a philosopher, pick Epicurus. It's about 10 pages of writing that he's got left over, which is just makes it really easy on you. Yeah, but before we get into that, I, I feel like I've talked enough about that I'll try to to shove in a butt joke every now and then to to please the crowd. But <laughs> besides that, I if I can give a note too about the tendency for this kind of behavior, humans are sexual creatures, and like you said, it's not really in fashion right now to just openly discuss details of sexuality. It can be more or less taboo, and it's the extension to the statement when in Rome. It's it's also like, when in time are you? Because you could yeah. be in a certain time period and it might be pretty standard. It wouldn't really rustle anyone or startle anyone. But in current age, we usually keep stuff, what, PG-13 or so, I think in standard conversation and maybe even PG in the workplace, depending on where you work. But, but... People are sexual, and that's one of the things that has allowed us to survive and propagate ourselves, right? Is we have a drive for sexual stimulation in some capacity. 
but we're not supposed to be just yammering on about that and all of our private behaviors and this and that. And I think they've seen that in some uncontacted tribes as well, which I guess they would have to contact to find that out. But what people do in their sex lives isn't usually just openly talked about by the whole social group. There is some level of reservation and privacy there where it's between you and your partner and like that's how it goes rather than just talking to the whole town about what you did last night. And with that sort of restriction balanced with the desire, it seems like people try to find different avenues to express themselves. And in 2019, one of these avenues is memes. So if there's something that we're frustrated about or we think that's funny or we want to express it, we'll make memes about it, we'll joke about it, and that's a way of letting off some steam and frustration and that kind of stuff. So people like butts. Like that's that's adaptive for us. If we didn't like the way that other humans looked, then we wouldn't really be able to have such a massive population. So if you like butts, that's okay. Just try to appreciate butts in a responsible and appropriate right way. Um, yeah, just be safe and be respectful out there, okay? Butts are great. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's really well said. Um, I think we're living in rather weird times in terms of sexuality, where there's two sides to it. There's the overabundance of sexual content on the internet. On the other side, it's not something, as you said, that's socially discussed, which is problematic in my view, where you, you have that one influence that is rather graphic, but you don't have a means to discuss it and what this means, which I think can leave people with a rather warped um, sense of what sexuality is and what it should be about. I don't know as much about other countries' education growing up, but I know that in Texas and the United States, the sexual education that we get is very limited, like extremely limited. It's basically the absolute minimum that you would have to tell the students and get away with calling it education about human sexuality. From what I remember, they basically told us what the body parts were and how reproduction happens. But I didn't get a proper course on human sexuality until I took it as an elective in university. So that would be after you've done all of your high school stuff. So people are, what, 19 to 21 years old when they're finally learning about stuff and how to be responsible. Because I feel like knowledge empowers people to make the right decisions or at least fewer bad decisions. So it behooves society to kind of find appropriate times and places to discuss this, the do's and don'ts, give some words to the wise uh, so people don't mess stuff up. Yeah. Yeah, I think our sexual education consisted mostly of how to do it safely. Like you, you don't want to get anyone pregnant unless you really choose to. So that was the focus of our education. And I think it happened around 13, 14, which I guess is mm -hmm. a good time where people can take it at least semi-seriously. But it, it has to kind of um, be this and butthead effect too, where it's just like, huh, butts, huh, huh. Yeah. yeah, it's really hard to get kids to pay attention in a class like that. I ha I remember a science teacher who was saying that it's really frustrating for him to try to teach about sexuality because as soon as he says the name of single body part, the whole class starts laughing and they're all giggly and stuff. So 
Yeah. In that sense, it's not just the fault of the teachers. It's also kind of a, it's a, a new thing for kids growing up and they're not quite mature about accepting it and focusing on the learning material. They're just all, all fired up and full of emotions and things like that. Yeah. What was normal for us, and I think it's all over Switzerland, is that it's external teachers that come in for that subject only, which I think makes it a bit easier on the other teachers where you don't have to be the guy that was doing the sex ed. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you as we go into Epicurus. So we talked about a couple of different philosophers um all of them being over 2000 years old or the, their teachings being over 2000 years old and how relevant do you think those teachings still are uh, fully and totally relevant not in the case that they're always practiced and followed by everyone but in the sense that they shaped the uh, successive uh, levels of philosophical discussion and culture and norms and things like this so that it's all sort of built upon as long as it's not totally lost and even then sometimes even if you burned all the books it's still affected the way people act and talk to each other so i think it's pretty difficult to totally eliminate ideas in that sense yeah so um i was looking over what we already talked about and i think that about 80 percent of the teachings still seem to be relevant while there's just some parts that kind of fall off because we we think of the world differently today which is fair i guess there's um knowledge that will adjust to the time but there's other things especially in philosophy questions like how to behave right how to live a good life that will always be relevant and will never be uh, answered fully in my opinion and yeah so i think this is a good start to to kind of talk about epicurus um in regards to um, the different schools of philosophy at the time. So Epicurus lived around 200 uh, BC, which is 100 to 200 years after um, Plato and Aristotle. So their schools were already fully going and their teachings were taught to the Athenians of the time. And Epicurus made his own school and he the, the big difference of his philosophy to uh, Plato and Aristotle was while they were always looking at objective, what is objectively good, what is overarchingly good or bad in society, he was looking um, at the world in a lot more subjective way in everyone is their own person so everyone has to find out for themselves what's right or wrong and how to live a good life according to that which is something we we really we strongly see in today's society where it's there's no um big good and evil anymore but everything has to kind of figure out for themselves what what is good for them and what is not and Epicurus teaches us how to, to go about that, how to find out for yourself what you want, 
why you want it and whether or not wanting something is actually good for you. So we'll see some parallels to Buddhist teachings. Uh, I think a lot of parallels actually, but uh, a lot less emphasis on telling you what's good. It's just about you have to figure it out yourself, which I think is something everyone can relate to nowadays. Or, or to, to bring it back to the topic of butts, um, pursuing butts can be good, doesn't necessarily have to be. The, the thing is to look at how you're doing it and how pursuing butts will affect your life in the long run. <laughs> Still laughing. I'm not an adult yet, apparently. <clears throat> that was pretty good, though. Okay, so the thing with this uh, notion you've raised, which is the pursuit of butts, I think speaks to the concept of desire. And uh, Slavoj Zizek is a guy who I watched a, I guess it's a movie documentary kind of thing where he talks about ideology. And one of the things that he discusses is the way that desire is pitched to us through advertising and how desire specifically involves not having something because once you have it, the desire goes away because it's with you in that moment. So there's a difference too between desiring a butt and then the butt being around, right? And how you have to think about long-term, what is this pursuit doing for me? Is this good to chase desires and have desires? Is desire the end goal or what? Desire is a tricky thing and managing your desire and the way that you pursue gratification and reward and things like that seems like a really difficult uh, thing to tackle regardless of whether it's butts or it could be tasty beverages or it could be outings with your friends, just stuff that is indulging in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to shift it away from butts because that would raise some weird notions about whether or not you could own someone else's butt. Um, so I'm going to shift it to things. So wanting something is a good thing. I want to say like wanting something is normal. So I think we all want something now and again. And there's no problem with wanting something unless it's too hard to pursue. So you'll destroy yourself in pursuing something or about um, getting something is almost always nice. Then again, owning something almost always has uh, brings some problem with it. So there's really different. Um, the desire to get something is something you want. Getting getting it is nice as well then again having it is is another topic altogether and there's this concept of buyer's remorse that has kind of come up i think we we all notice in some regard where you think yeah this is really something i want and i'm gonna buy it and i spend a bunch of money and then you have it and you're kind of like all right yeah have to put it somewhere i guess when you go from purchasing the item to inventory management Oh yeah. boy, I need a slot for this. And then there's oftentimes things like upkeep and maintenance. It involves work, like ownership of items and things like this. You need storage space and you need upkeep and that kind of stuff. And I think when you're in the desire phase, you usually don't think about the work involved. You just think about wanting the thing. Yeah. 
or in the context of a relationship wanting to be with the person. You want to be with the person, but a relationship takes a lot of dedicated effort over time to have that be a productive venture for both parties. Usually when you're in the like courtship romance phase, you're not quite as focused on the stuff that's going to be really difficult in the long term. You're focused on the excitement in the immediate term. Yeah. Uh, Nietzsche said that you should not make any decisions um, while you're in love. So if you get into a relationship and you decide to get married after a month or two, might not be the best idea because you're your mind is still blinded by falling in love and just you're, you're not thinking straight. And if you give it some time and realize that things are really working out, that might be a good idea to, to get married, but not do it in the heat of the moment. And the moment when falling in love can take up to half a year, maybe one and a half years, depending on who you ask. Some people still claim they, they are in love after 10 years, which I'm a bit skeptical of, but to each their own. Well, there's love and then there's the like fire of infatuation, which I think is more of what you're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, love is one of the, those words that is really a matter of definition. I think everyone sees love in kind of a different light. But yeah, infatuation is definitely a good word for it. Um, yeah, so before we go uh, deeper into um, Epicurus, there's a couple of other topics I wanted to briefly touch on. So last time we talked about detoronizing and the philosophy of uh, World of Warcraft, detoronizing being the method of not seeing other races as Toran, uh, and therefore diminishing um, their claim to, to anything. And I talked about how the Toranizing or the humanizing, as we would call it in today's world, is really problematic and has some good sides to it too. But for the most part, it's what we ought not to do. And after thinking about it and watching some political commentary on Twitch, watching some um, some of the... Uh, debates that happened in the UK um, in front of Brexit, uh, I, I was thinking of a different kind of dehumanizing that seems rather common these days. And I, I want to address that briefly. So dehumanizing can take a, a bunch of different forms where we just see another race or another religion as being as human as we are, therefore the, the diminishing them uh, and... Uh, justifying a war against them, for example. But in modern politics, it's not as much about not making them human anymore, but it's about not acknowledging the issue they're having. So uh, in American politics these days, for example, there's um, the left side talking about environmental issues, while the right side uh, has a heavy emphasis on... Uh, immigration issues and they tend to talk past each other quite a lot with both sides not acknowledging the issue that the other side is having 
and I, I'm quite biased there, so I'm not, not going to talk about which of these issues are more relevant or we should focus more on. Um, but I just wanted to say that it, as long as we're not acknowledging the issue the other side is having, we're not getting into a a good productive conversation about it, and we'll we'll, we'll not be able to solve either of the problems. And to kind of um, illustrate this, imagine you're in a relationship and your wife comes over, tells you the kitchen is on fire. And you tell her, well, yeah, maybe kitchen is on fire, but um, also the basement is underwater. So there's like there's no reason to take care of the kitchen as long as the basement is underwater. And... Both of them are serious issues. I'd say that the kitchen on fire might be a bit more serious depending on on, on what kind of building you're living in. Um, but as long as you don't acknowledge the other side and, and realize that their issue might be important as well, you're not getting anywhere. And eventually both of these issues will have to be solved or you have to move, which is probably the, the easier um, way when the, the kitchen is on fire and the basement is flooded. You heard it here, folks. If your country is trapped in a political debate, just leave the country. <laughs> no, that's a cool analogy. I hadn't thought of that before. That's pretty clever. I agree that that is a, a pretty common issue where two sides just really want to focus on one issue and not really address the other one at all. So no one makes any progress. And... Um then there was the topic of autonomous weapon systems that you raised on the last Agent Smith episode, which is a rather interesting topic that I wanted just to briefly go on about. Um, so I live in Davos, Switzerland, so we have the yearly gathering of all the rich and famous people. And they all come up here to discuss current and important issues. There's some debate whether or not this is a productive meeting and whether or not it's just elitist and they, they don't really solve any issues, but rather just do business while um, staying up in the Alps, getting drunk, which is a fair point. But then again, the, the forum is open to the to public viewing, so you can't go in there, obviously, but you they put everything they talk about on YouTube and you can see um, what issues they talk about and how they talk about them. And autonomous weapon system was a subject, I want to say two years ago, um, probably three years ago. And I found it rather interesting. So when people entered the, the debate, they had a vote beforehand. And there were two questions. First one being, uh, imagine you're country going to war would you rather send autonomous weapon systems or people to fight that war usually you would send weapon systems because people are more valuable and less replaceable than autonomous things yeah so i think there were like 70 percent that said that so you're what you're 30 percent didn't say that mm, yeah wow okay and the other question was... I'm not going to so, let them watch my dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the other question was, so imagine you're getting invaded. Would you like to get invaded by autonomous weapon systems or by an army of people? Ooh, that's a more difficult question. Probably autonomous weapon systems because I would have less qualms with shooting at them. I wouldn't have quite as much of a wrestling of conscience. Well, that's a fair point. So it, it was the other side around. It was 70% wanted to get invaded by people because you, you think of them as being probably, hopefully, a bit more humane in their approach, which is not necessarily true. But yeah, there's a, a, a big difference between who you'd want to invade or how you'd want to get invaded or who you'd want to get invaded by, which is quite interesting. So we, we tend to think of autonomous weapon systems as rather effective, which they probably are, uh, but to be calculating um, in a different way than humans would do it, where you, you, you see a weapon system as just cold, rational, uh, and just doing what it was told. While a human soldier might have um, some empathy for you as an enemy and might not kill you at the first attempt to do so. I don't Which know. Is... I feel like humans will also do nastier things to you than a robot would. Yeah, that's that's a really fair point you, you raised there. Humans can do pretty nasty things, especially in war situations. It, it justifies a lot of behavior you would not normally see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was kind of the initial vote. And then they started to talk about how um, we're having all these conventions on how to do warfare nowadays, um, specifically the Geneva Convention on when it is okay to shoot at people, when it is not okay to shoot at people. Um, that, for example, as soon as you have a wounded enemy combatant that you're obligated to help them. Things like that that are um, not necessarily followed during um, conflicts, but we, we have those rule sets. And giving an autonomous weapon system all those rule sets would be an easy thing to do. So if set up perfectly, uh, a drone would be the perfect um, ethical war machine. That's a bit of a conundrum there, but <laughs> nevertheless. <laughs> um, no, trust us. It's the most kind and gentle war machine you've ever seen. Yeah. But it also brings the issue with if that weapon system falls into the hands of the enemy and they hack it, they erase two or three lines of codes and the, the shit um, the, the system just goes crazy and kills everything it sees. So it, it's kind of with same with humans. If they forget the rule sets, they, they tend to go crazy, which is rather problematic. But yeah, it, it's a really interesting topic and it's it's something that we'll have to to really look at as a society and what we want to have happen and how um, companies should be allowed to produce um, weapon systems that we kind of agree with, which I don't think is something we already do. So I think that's a, a political issue that will be raised as soon as we have. Um, it, it's an actual problem. Um, that maybe when it's too late 
already. So yeah, anyone interested in that, I'm just gonna link the the talk during the the forum and chat so you can look that up. Um, yeah, and on the topic of the World Economic Forum, um, yeah, I'm living up here and I'm a always kind of struggling with, with how, how to call myself in terms of a job. I'm a independent filmmaker, but I don't do movies for the most part. Um, and I do a lot of political stuff in terms of videos. So last year I started this project because we had the awesome opportunity to, to rent the local cinema during the forum or we already had it rented. So I was able to put on people's voices to to show the people that come up here for the forum, which are the most powerful people in politics and the industry, and show them what normal people think about what should be different in the world. And that was a, a really... Um, interesting experience to me to just kind of hear people's voices on what they think is the the most important issue of the time or to, to just to set the whole thing up and, and trying to to find people that would be willing to to talk about what they seem to be the biggest issues of the time and yeah we started about for five weeks before the forum and gathered as much uh, voices as we could, um, me and my wife, and then put it together into a video and showed that to people willing to see it that were attending the forum, which was a really nice experience. And the cinema we were using at the time got destroyed now. That's why we were able to use it for free at the time. And I was looking into getting another place to, to do the same kind of project again and just show up with other voices and just show what, what, what is important to people that would not normally be addressed up here. And I was able to, to find a place that would be willing to do that. So at some point in the nearish future, I'll be asking you the nice viewership to submit what you think of the world and why uh, those in power are idiots um nicely phrased please um in order to to have something to show and to show that we are engaged in politics we do care about what the world will look like in 20 years from now and we don't just want the people in power um do as they please I think that should be pretty fun because I feel like people oftentimes feel like they don't have a voice. And in many cases, that's because they don't really have much of one. So being asked what they think is a, a really nice thing. I've noticed this about just general human to human conversation. People tend to underestimate the value of listening as opposed to speaking. Like that's one of the best things you can do for someone is to listen to what they have to say in a genuine way where you're trying to follow what they're saying and understand. And sometimes uh, it's less about dazzling them with really impressive knowledge or being really funny. And it's being open to knowing them and hearing about what they have to say. So you don't really necessarily have to wow someone if you're like, oh, I like this person. I want to I make a really good impression. That doesn't mean they have to go out of your way to 
tell an impressive story or something. Sometimes that could mean just listening to their perspective on stuff. Yeah, people tend to prefer um, talking about themselves than they um, do listening to others talk. So that's why being a good listener will um, leave a bigger impression than being a good talker, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so that were all of the kind of side notes I wanted to address. So we can dive into Epicurean philosophy now. Let's do it. And buts on today's episode of Philosophy with Ece Fatum on the Voice of Neuro, we're going to learn about Epicurus's butt. Wait, really? Um, yeah, so first off about Epicurus, um, as I said, he was living in, or he lived most of his life in Athens. He was not born there. He was, um, he founded his school first in, uh, I have to look that up. Where was it? and Samos in Greece. So quite a ways off from from Athens. And his school wasn't where he liked where he, he first started it by the Pythagoreans at the time. So he got kicked out there, but then started his school in Athens. And um, while most people disagreed with what he has to say, Epicurus was the kind of guy that everyone liked. He was a good talker, a good listener, just a, a pleasant person to be around. So while almost everyone disagreed with him, everyone's like, yeah, he's wrong, but he's such a nice guy. <laughs> Which is a, a, a good thing to aspire to. And yeah, so his main or his main writings were natural philosophy. So he, he, he talked lengths about um, what we call the sciences today. Um, unfortunately, all of those writings got lost. So we don't know anything about them anymore except for other people quoting him. But I'm going to read you a list of what he, the kind of range of his work was, which is quite impressive, even for his time. So, he had 37 books on nature, um, on atoms and emptiness, on lust, um, proper beliefs, um, on the end, um, five books on lives, on just behavior, on seeing, on touch, on fate, on ghosts, on appearance, on music, on kingship. Yeah, he, he talked about everything. And yeah. He covered the bases. Definitely. But as I said, all, all of these teachings were lost over time. We know about them because um, uh, Diogenes listed them in one of his books where he went through the library and well, this is everything that Epicurus wrote. And the only thing we, we still have left are the, the 
core teachings of his school and a bunch of letters he wrote to different people um, fleshing out a, a bunch of different of his views. So his natural philosophy was focused on getting rid of anything supernatural. Epicurus himself argued that there are gods, which probably was more of a necessity at the time because people didn't look kindly on those that said God was dead or God, there are no gods in the first place. But everything in his natural philosophy was getting rid of the supernatural that could happen and just trying to explain everything through um, the means of science as we know it today. That being said, he got almost everything he talked about wrong. But that's okay because for his time he didn't do too bad. Um, yeah, what he talked about and what's something that's still present today is to believe in absent gods which is kind of an adaptation if, if you don't believe in the gods but don't want to say the gods aren't there. You talk about the gods in a sense that um, they, they came here, they created the world, and then they left. So we don't have any interaction with them anymore and they can't change your fate or they, they won't smite you if you do something wrong. And... The main reason he, he talked about absent gods or um, gods and ghosts not having any influence on our life was his ethical philosophy, which we'll be looking at in depth. So Epicurus taught um, that the main goal in life is ataraxia, which will roughly translate to tranquility, um, a sort of peaceful enjoyment. So the, the main goal in life is to, to live a happy life, but live a happy life in a sense that you're not um, disturbing the peaceful enjoyment of others. Um, his philosophy was amoral, so he didn't uh, subscribe to any system that there's a... Um, capital T truth to anything being good or bad. Good or bad is subjective to him. It's what you deem to be good or bad with some disclaimers. And the, the main thing, the main virtue he taught was prudence. And prudence being the um, ha having the knowledge to, to know what is good or bad for you, having the mindfulness to thinking about what is good or bad for you, just taking a step back and, and thinking about it um, in the abstract and thinking, well, do I really want to chase that butt or is it? are there other better butts that are easier to pursue? <laughs> yeah, prudent sounds like live smart in the sense where you use the information that's available and you try to make the best decision you can with that information. 
which is really difficult because I wouldn't say that humans are fully rational actors. We're also emotionally motivated in a lot of ways. And sometimes those emotions can be beneficial to us, I think, but there are ones that we should check with our prudence as well. So an example would be uh, courage can be an emotional experience whenever you're in a dangerous situation and that can drive you to take the risk and to try to make a bold move that maybe no one else can make. And it may be scary and it may be unsafe, but that emotion can keep your momentum going so that you can follow through and complete that task in a really tough spot. Is it rational? Not exactly, because you don't necessarily have evidence that you're going to succeed. And to the contrary, you might know that it's pretty dangerous, but it's still a really useful motivator for us to try our best in a tough spot. Yeah. Um, one important distinction to make here is it's Epicurus's um, teachings are not the same as egoism that we see um, appear later on the the likes of Ayn Rand talked about where you just pursue your own happiness and have little regard for others it's quite a different thing he he talked about um the necessity of being social and how to weigh that against your own um desires a lot so it, it's always seen in you're always seen in a social context it's not just um pursuing your own pleasure but arguably his philosophy had had some influence on later thinkers that were thinking we should just pursue our own goals and don't regard others. But I, I doubt he would agree with that. Um, so ataraxia as a concept is, in my opinion, is quite similar to the Zen philosophy, uh, to the Taoist philosophy, where you just try to take yourself out of the world and, and live a happy life for yourself. It's a rather, um, it, it focuses on inaction rather than action, where it's, um, for example, starting a ladder game uh, in StarCraft 2 will most likely with, mess with your ataraxia at some point. Um, for me, mostly around two and a half minutes when the first circling show up. Can we get a definition on it's ataraxia you're saying, not anorexia? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. Okay. Uh, I think it's AT. What? Uh, ATA, wait, I just copied into, um, into chat so I don't make a fool of myself trying to pronounce it. Um, where was I? Yeah, so it, it, it's a, um, it emphasizes, it has an emphasis on not doing things because doing things will almost always disturb your tranquility at some point. 
So he was famously unpolitical. He he thought that involving yourself with politics will disturb your peace and quiet, so you better take yourself out of that and just um, live a happy life without messing with politics or messing with other people. He talked a lot about um, not disturbing your neighbors, because if you disturb your neighbors, they will eventually, it will eventually turn back on you and they will disturb you. So just better be peace and uh, have peace and quiet with your neighbors because that will um, not disturb you in the long run. So I did Google this term and apparently it's not one that's very commonly used. It's a ancient Greek term for being free from preoccupation or worry. And the top result on Google actually took me to the band page of a doom metal band by that name. So it is ataraxy is what it looks like. I'm not sure. I've never heard this word before, but tranquility, I think, is a word you could use there. Serenity, uh, internal peace is kind of what it sounds like to me. Or uh, a doom metal band. <laughs> Maybe Epicurus. He, he would have liked to listen to Doom Metal if it was around in his time. Yeah, you cut out there for a second, but I was thinking if there's a band that's called that, they, they most likely make some kind of really heavy metal music. That would make sense. Yep, it's Doom Metal. Um, don't know what that means. Uh, doom Metal is... A very slow tempo metal. It's still very heavy. Think about uh, death metal, but maybe a third of the tempo or a quarter. Much, much slower phrases. It's kind of a right. slow lumbering feel as opposed to a you're getting attacked by a machine gun kind of a feel. Yeah. Now I think we should listen to that once the segment is over to get our ataraxia going. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, desires. Where do the desires come from and what to make of it? That was the, the main teaching of Epicurus that is still around today. And if you have a desire, say, for the, the purpose of staying on topic, you desire butts. Where does the desire come from? So there's a sexual desire. I think there's a um, an interest in aesthetics as well, which doesn't necessarily have to be um, of a sexual nature. Well, it's kind of uh, like an appreciation of art in a way, but it's the human form. Yeah. And when you desire butts, one of the first questions you have to ask yourself, um, yeah, Epicurus would... Um, categorize the desire for butts as a natural desire so something that arises naturally within humans that being the se sexual desire for the most part but also appreciation of art can is of a natural nature where there's many superficial desires that we kind of developed over time where uh, for example um, eating food is natural but eating fancy food is uh, superficial we don't have to eat caviar to, 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 to stay alive. 
we, we might as well eat grain. So there's, we layer like the superficial uh, desires on top of the natural desires, which is something you can see in Maslow hierarchies of needs. So there's like different layers of desires and the, the further up you get, the more superficial it gets. So you desire butts. Um, we, we've seen that there's a bunch of different ways you can desire butts uh, and a, a bunch of different um, reasons where it comes from. So how easy is your um, desire for butts fulfilled? It's a, a really important question within Epicurus's teachings. Because if it's easy to, like if you just wanna look at butts, that's rather easy to do knowing the internet. If you wanna um, get a even better sense of the butts, that might be something that's um, more difficult to do and might come with some repercussions. So be careful when, um, in the way you're pursuing your, your the pleasure you're having with butts. <laughs> and yeah, th this is the, 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 the central question, um, how easy it is to, to fulfill your pleasure. Because the harder something is, the more likely it is to have negative uh, connotations with it. And then you should think about it twice, whether or not chasing butt is the right thing to do. Um, he had a good example. Um, so someone wrote him a letter and was like, yeah, I I'm really into this girl, but I know pursuing her would be a lot of work and it would definitely mess with my, um, what was it called again? Adorexia. Still not sure how to pronounce that. Um, and yeah, um, Epicurus, should I pursue her or should I not? And Epicurus answered, well, it's kind of like this. Try pleasuring yourself first because pleasuring yourself will make you feel good. It will um, ease tension of that natural need you feel um, to pursue a girl. And if, if you realize when you do that, um, that you're, the, the, the interest in the girl um, lessens, you probably just had that natural desire and you were attaching it to an object at random and you might as well pursue another girl that is easier to get. Yeah, so always think about um, how, how difficult it is to get something and whether or not you're willing to go through the pain of getting it and if it's worth getting when you consider what you have to go through. Sounds so, like he, a cost-benefit analysis to me. Yeah. Um, he never argued for... Um, 
it being worth pursuing something or it not being worth pursuing something objectively it's always it's your decision it's it's your decision but you have to decide it's not it's not something you should should just leave up to uh randomness you should actively be mindful of what it means to pursue something and whether or not you're willing to go through all that in order to to finally get it which as we talked about before getting something is nice than having something probably a bit of a pain so just consider all these things before you uh, go but first into pursuing something um yeah what's the potential of disturbing tranquility when pursuing it this is the 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 main focus of all of his teachings um just be mindful of, of what you want be mindful of what it means wanting that where the desire comes from and just keep reminding yourself of um what do i desire why do i desire it is it worth desiring do you still desire it afterwards? And do you though? Yeah, so the, the topic that comes up uh, time and time again, I think on every lecture we, we did so far is being mindful and just um, not, not just um, let the life run its course but really thinking about what you're doing why you're doing it and whether or not this is the thing you want or it's just the thing that happened at random and trying to figure out what you want can be a rather difficult task like if if it's short-term desire like i want something to eat better get some food if you already have something to eat and you still want something to eat might not be the best pursuit so it's really about being mindful about what you want, why you want it. So all of that being said, does chat still want me to talk about butts? Well, I think every time you've brought it back to butts, there's a little cheer in the chat. So I think some references here and there, like Easter eggs, all stuff right. like that would be pretty reasonable. I mean, anatomy of butts and stuff like that, people can do further reading on their own time. But, yeah. <laughs> now, I looked up a bunch of butt jokes, so I, I'm good to go for another two hours or so. Nice. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the outline of his core teachings and what he was all about is to to know what you want to to know how to get it and to question yourself whether or not trying to get it is worth to pursue which i see a lot of um similarities with uh, the buddhist concept of really being mindful of um what you want and that wanting things is probably bad for you it's not it doesn't have the same emphasis on it being bad it's it's outside of a moral realm it's just you really have to decide for yourself whether or not this is worth it or not and there's some good examples um so in 
Plato's teachings of um, ethics, we have this um, concept of the golden mean. And Epicurus was heavily influenced by that. So um, this meaning that acting ethically is always a middle way between two extremes. So for example, in ancient Greece, it was really important to be a strong warrior, like every philosopher we talked about that came from ancient Greece was also a, a, a good warrior in some form or another. And that's why they had the kind of social standing that made it um, possible for them to, to, to become philosophers and just to be the guys talking other than um, fighting wars. Um, but when you have that kind of bravery as a warrior, there's too much bravery where you go butt first into battle, or there's not enough bravery um, uh, where you act as a coward. So being ethical in ancient Greece was also always this middle ground between too much of one side or too much of the other. And this is... You see this heavily in Epicurus' teachings as well, where pursuing too much but is not good for you. Not pursuing any but might be bad for you as well. So just get the right amount of buts you want. All right, you heard it here, folks. Some people say big butts, some people say small butts. At your tomb just said medium butts. <laughs> yeah, well put. It's the Please right amount of butt your... for you. Please set all butt levels to medium or moderate. Thank you. <laughs> and a really good example that still is relevant today, was relevant at a time, was the pursuit of money. So um, Epicurus thought that having money is good because it enables you to live a lot more um, peaceful life because getting money is taken care of or having money. But as soon as it gets to pursuing a lot of money, you tend to run into problems. So as with buts, there's um, a too much, there's a too little, and there's the, the middle path that would be right amount of money, which really depends on person, from person to person, and people see what amount of money they, they want as... Um, yeah, can vary a lot. And Epicurus kind of looked at it from the perspective of, well, think about what you actually need. Um, being a house to live in, slaves at the time, because everyone had slaves. Um, you need food and you need enough money to, to, to get around. Um, ancient Greeks weren't as much into savings it was it already was a concept but it's not as today where you save for retirement for the most part because you died a lot earlier and you, you could kind of work till the end of your life um, then we have today's concept of making as much money while you're still good to work and then retiring when there's not as many fun things to do anymore because you don't have the physical strength to do them, which is um, 
I don't think the best concept we ever invented. I prefer to to spend my money now and have a good time rather than saving up for when I'm 65 or what will be 85 by the time I will get retired. So yeah, right amount of money is a um, is a difficult concept today as it was back then. But just looking at it from a perspective of well, what do you actually need and what you what do you want to make out of money? Because if you if you pursue money too aggressively, it will get you into a whole bunch of troubles, and you will never be satisfied with the amount of money you'll get. Yeah, I think part of that is acclimation as well. You take for granted the current state you're in usually, even if it's pretty good, because it becomes standard, unamusing, and your norm. So you tend to look for the next level up. It's a pretty tough question that you could ask, which is when will I allow myself to be happy? It's fine to have some goals and some achievable ones where you attach metrics to them and stuff and say, I would like to own a home or I would like to make this amount of money per year. But I think it's really easy to go from one of those goals to the X plus one where, yeah, you reach that. But, you know, I would be happier if I had a slightly bigger boat. There's always a bigger boat. Yep. There's always a bigger butt. That too. <laughs> yeah. So from all these teachings... Um, Epicurus made his own school where he taught his views on the world, which I find such an awesome concept where you just um, move to Athens and start your own school and teach um, people what you believe to be right. It's something we're, we're kind of missing out on nowadays where well, we, we kind of have the same concept with some people talking about um, their beliefs on the internet and get a religious kind of following but you, you don't just move to some place and start teaching what you believe to be right which i think would be rather fun to do um so the school he made was in a garden and this was quite different to the other schools at the time where they were either at a town square to be talking politics or they were in a kind of classroom to have the minds of the pupils focusing on what is talked about. Epicurus thought, well, it's it's nice in a garden, so why not just be in a garden and talk philosophy? Which is, yeah, I, I think I'd attend his school as well. Sounds a lot more fun than the others. And the really radical thing he did, which was unheard for, unheard of before, was he invited women and slaves to be listening to his lectures. So it was commonly believed that women and slaves are not worthy of being taught anything and they would not understand it and they had nothing meaningful to say. And Epicurus totally disagreed with that and was like, well, there's um, people have interesting things to say whether or not they're a slave or a woman or just the normal um, Athenian. And he got a lot of slack for that. So they called him out for always having orgies and not doing anything productive. Um, 
when people were attending his garden, which we're not 100% sure whether or not this was happening in happening in any capacity, but most likely not. And Epicurus was mostly cool with that. He just let them talk because it would um, really disturb your tranquility if you start worrying about what other people say about you. And yeah, so the one of the only things that's been that we still have of Epicurus was the principal doctrine of his school, which we will be going into now. And other than that, it's just a bunch of letters that he wrote to different people. And his his school was rather interesting in what they or, or what the, the principal doctrine was, and we'll see later how that influenced other people other people's belief and how to look at the world. So it's 40 parts. I'm not sure whether we can or should go through all of these, but I'm just picking out the ones that seemed interesting to me. And then we see how we're doing with time. So the first one, a happy and eternal being has no trouble himself and brings no trouble upon any other being. Hence, it is exempt from movements of anger and partiality for every such movement implies weakness. So in order to be happy and eternal, you you don't trouble yourself and you don't trouble others because that will, will mess with your tranquility. And yeah, it implies weakness if you, you um, want to mess with others. You don't mess with them, they won't mess with you. Exactly. And yeah, I think living a a, um, a quiet and peaceful life is a, a good goal as a whole. It has a bit of a problem with it. it um, takes emphasis from striving towards doing something because it, it might mess with your uh, adorexia. But then again, you you'll not be able to kind of live out your potential if you're just um, waiting on a couch for um, the happiness not to go away. And I think it won't make you as happy in the long run. But this is also something he addressed where it's like, it's not always about avoiding any short-term pain if it means that you'll get uh, bigger enjoyment out of it in the long run. It's always, you always have to weigh your options and to, to think about whether or not you, you really want the result or if it's not worth pursuing. You think you want it, but you don't. <laughs> have you heard that meme before? It's a pretty new one. Uh, no. So there's a famous talk at BlizzCon. There was a attendee who asked Blizzard at the like normal Q&A session if they considered adding legacy servers to the game of the older iterations of World of Warcraft. And this was asked to a person who was one of the leads for World of Warcraft. And he basically explained why modern World of Warcraft is very much improved and you're just imagining the old version being better than it was, kind of a golden age fallacy kind of thing. 
and yeah. he infamously said, you think you want it, but you don't, which it's interesting being told that by someone else. I think it's possible for an individual to think they want something or to desire something, even though it would not be good for them. That's definitely a thing. Yeah. Uh, and there are cases where maybe they're correct about that, but it does, I think, offend a lot of our individualist sentiments when someone tells us what we should or should not want. Yeah, I think Epicurus would have strong beliefs about what is good to want and what is not. But in his philosophy, he just said, well, it's it's your decision, but make it your decision, not just um, let fate take over. And yeah, I think if you're telling people what they want and what they don't want, they tend to disagree with you and do it even though they don't really want it. So you can kind of push people towards doing something if you tell them, well, that's not what you want, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um number two and i think this is probably the most famous or the one that's been i've seen memes about this one although i don't didn't really get the meme um death is nothing to us for the body when it has been resolved into its elements has no feeling and that which has no feeling is nothing to us so what he talks about here is that we ought not to fear death because once we're dead we don't have to care anymore this doesn't mean living a life where you, you're constantly pushing yourself to the edge and are uh, close to death, but it's just that having a fear of death, since death is a natural occurrence, is not something you should occupy your mind with. It's something that will happen eventually, but once it happens, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a concept I've heard a bunch. Not necessarily giving credit to Epicurus, but yep. Do not fear death. You'll have plenty of time to savor what that's like. Oh, wait, you can't savor stuff because you're not alive. Guess you should focus on your day today. Yeah. Uh, Number three, the magnitude of pleasure reaches its limits in the removal of all pain. When pleasure is present, so long as it is uninterrupted, there is no pain either for body or of the mind or of both together. So maximizing pleasure, but in a um, reasonable sense, was what his philosophy was about. Because when you experience pleasure, life is good. And in order to experience pleasure, you have to remove pain. Yeah, pain and pleasure use a lot of the same pathways, biologically speaking, which is, I think, worth noting. That's how uh, things are wired in an efficient way. If you already have the neurons and synapses and all this to send a certain type of signal, you may as well use that for a couple different things. And pain and pleasure are one of those. So I can see why you would link removal of pain as being connected with pleasure in some capacity. It is a a good note by Cobra X here that um, 
you could say Epicurus's view of death is fairly atheistic. We did open with that, uh, discussing the groundwork of where he's coming from. So in the time, it was not quite appropriate to say that you didn't believe in the gods, but basically if you don't acknowledge them as having an active hand in the affairs of the world, then it ends up being a secular perspective that he held, even if he's not denouncing the gods per se. Yeah. Yeah, so the um, minimizing of pain and maximizing pleasure is something that we see later on again with utilitarianism, which is, has kind of the focus um, depending on the type of utilitarianism on uh, maximizing pleasure or minimizing pain, which is sounds similar but is completely different in its approach. And yet the, the influence or Epicurus was the main influence on that philosophy, which we will hopefully talk about some other time, because it's quite interesting too, and has some rather weird notions on how to act ethically based on whether or not you want to, to maximize pleasure or minimize pain. It is impossible to live a pleasant life without living wisely and well and justly. And it is impossible to live wisely and well and justly without living pleasantly. Whenever any of these is lacking, for instance, the person is not able to live wisely, though they, they live well and justly, it is impossible for them to live a pleasant life. So we're starting to, to mix a bunch of different concepts together, which is always lovely. So a pleasant life, that would be uh, ataraxia. This would be the, the kind of good life that Epicurus was teaching. So in order to achieve that, you have to live wise, just, um, uh, wise, well, and just. So what does this mean? Wise meaning that you're questioning what you want, that you um, make the right decisions. Living wisely is basically the concept that Plato and Aristotle were teaching, where you have to have knowledge in order to live a good life. So Epicurus thought of this as just being one part of it. Living well means pursuing the right things and justly means treating others the right way as well as treating yourself the right way i guess and in order to have this the pleasant life that epicurus was talking about you have to mix all those together so you have to be thoughtful and make the right decisions and do it in a social capacity so here again, I think we really see how this goes hand in hand with uh, the teachings of the Buddha, where it's just like, be mindful of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and what it means for you. Uh, no pleasure in itself is evil, but the things which produce certain pleasures entail um, many things that could be considered evil.
and that might be much greater than the pleasure itself. Um, so when you desire something and you see that it might take a lot of things to get there, the harm you do when pursuing it will be a lot greater than the um, the the high you get out of getting what you wanted and being mindful of that is really important. So when we come back to the um, the subject of butts, if you chase too much butts, you'll uh, do a lot of harm to other people, and that inevitably have consequences for you. Um, you might go to jail for it, depending on how you chase butts. So being mindful of, of the harm you can do um, when trying to maximize your own pleasure. I think the pursuit of butts, one thing that maybe we didn't know, but is worth mentioning here is the difference between finding certain elements of a person attractive versus appreciating the whole human as a thinking person with beliefs and desires and ambitions on their own as well. So that's kind of addressing the objectification of people around what you might desire about them sexually. They're still a person. And if that uh, awareness of them and that respect for them as a person goes away, then that's a, a big misstep. So you wouldn't want to sacrifice that in your pursuit of butts. You should remember people and look out for people and remain respectful and all that. Yeah, just remember that bots have people attached to them. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really interesting thought. Um, we talked about like having different notions of love. And this is also something um, to, to be mindful of and to, to, to really make that distinction. Um, what do, do you want out of a relationship? Because if butts is all you want, that's easier to get than starting a relationship. Just saying. Um, if it's a person you want, you, you ought to be mindful of what, what's important to you. I think there's a big emphasis on looks these days, which are really superficial and having a person next to you that looks nice will be pleasant, but it's in my opinion, not as pleasant as having a person next to you that is great to talk to. So you, you get a lot more longevity out of having a conversation than at looking something, um, than at looking at something beautiful. If you're going for that, you might just as well buy a painting or a photograph or something. And yeah, be, being mindful of what you want out of a relationship is something that it isn't taught enough, in my opinion. And there's many different things that one could pursue when looking for a relationship. And I'm not going to judge whether or not that's a good or bad thing. I know I, I have my own... Um, preferences when it comes to relationships but i'm not going to force them onto others yeah i think that raises a interesting note too about not just who you want to be with but who you would be proud living life with and standing next to in the world and you noted uh 
an aesthetic motivation for that. Maybe you want someone who looks good next to you. You could also want someone who uh, speaks well to others, like with you, and you're proud of in a more intellectual capacity, you could say. Yeah. Um, one interesting thought experiment there is um, whether or not you like the other person or you like yourself um, as who you are when you're with that person. And this is not one of those uh, either or questions. It's mostly a uh, combination of the both of them. But being aware that you will change as part of a relationship and to be mindful of what the change should be like or could be like is an interesting aspect of having a relationship, but also choosing the right friends or being a good friend in itself that you, you will change over time and change is a good thing for the most part. Some people change for the worse, I guess, but evolving as a person is really important and to, to be mindful, the kind of influence that other, other people have on you in, in that capacity to evolve is something that's really important and underestimated a lot. Um, so as, as Confucius talked about it, to, to be really mindful of um, who you choose as a friend. So only choose friends that are equal or better than you, not necessarily in a uh, social capacity, but in a ethical capacity. So only spend your time with people that are as good as you or better than you because they will uplift you and make you a better person in the process. Yeah, it's the internet in Yelps is not always the best. So that's why I'm cutting out every once in a while. Mm -hmm. um, give me a second. My phone is ringing for some reason. All right. Hello, is this Sache Fatum? Yes, this is Butt. <laughs> yes. Yes, I wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah, you're, uh, yes. The voice is cutting out sometimes. Yeah, someone is sitting on your internet cable. Yes, your internet cable that go it goes out from your house, someone is outside your house sitting on it. Yeah, it's not... The signal isn't going through. Yeah, you're going to need to get them off of that. Well, I don't know. You're going to have to talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, appreciate you being here. Hope you're enjoying this discussion about Epicurus, about butts. We've been having some cozy classic wow in the background. Running about with the fam. Just making a little bit of progress here and there in the tasks. Uh, Cobra X asked an interesting question about 
Righteousness, goodness, pleasantness, does that necessarily lead to success? Success is not always necessarily quantified in your salary. You can have different forms of success. Uh, one that I spoke with my uncle about recently was success in the sense that when you lay down to go to bed at night and you're trying to fall asleep, you're not wrestling with your conscience about all the bad things you did. You can lie down and rest easy knowing that you tried your best and tried to do the right thing and how that isn't really celebrated as much as a new car or a promotion or winning an award, but it's something that applies to everyone. You have to live with yourself for your whole life and being able to make decisions that you're proud of, that you stand by is incredibly valuable. So I would say it depends on how you define success because pleasant living, just living, good living, those lead toward uh, self-love in that sense and self-respect that are definitely a big win. Yeah, that was very well said. Um, Cobra said that uh, assessing whether other people are better than you will lead to elitism, which I tend to agree with. Um, the, the point Confucius was trying to make was not to judge others, but to, to surround yourself with people that will uplift you. So there's definitely a problem with elitism there, but it wasn't about um, uh, dehumanizing quote-unquote bad people, but it was about um, finding um, people to surround yourself with that are pleasant. And yeah, as you talked about, Neuro, uh, success is really uh, something you have to come to terms with yourself, whether or not something is successful or not. And there's a lot of um, external metrics that are kind of used to measure success, how much money you make or how much influence you have in a political realm, which can be good metrics, but don't necessarily have to be. Uh, as we talked about before, pursuing money will not bring happiness necessarily. Having money is a good thing. Pursuing money, probably not so. So if you only think of yourself as successful, if you make uh, half a million a year, it's okay if you get there. If you um, ruin your life, trying to get there is probably a bad pursuit. Yeah, Cobrex is talking about the, the notion that good behavior in life and uprightness and that kind of thing doesn't necessarily lead to a reward. Uh, that's very true. And I think that makes it difficult to pursue that because it's not the same mechanism of you desire rewards, so you put in the, the work to get there. But I would also say that people who generally go into a difficult task for the reward pursue it with less persistence and tenacity than someone who's in it for the process. If someone is pursuing something for the challenge and for the experience of facing that challenge and seeing how they change and develop through that, it's going to be a much more relentless and passionate process than the person who wants to be 
patted on the back and told they did a good job. I think being celebrated and lifting a trophy and things like that, those are nice little reinforcers, but it shouldn't really be the like primary pursuit. Being the best, I think, is a worthwhile pursuit, especially coming from the context of esports. You can have that as your goal. Being the best involves constantly trying to outplay your opponents every single time. That is more of a process-oriented goal as opposed to wanting the physical trophy in your trophy case. That's a more material-oriented one that isn't quite as strong of a objective. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think um, to generalize it, it's almost always better to have the immaterial pursuit than the material pursuit because it brings us back to to having things and knowing where to store them so just getting the trophy for the sake of the trophy is not as pleasurable as enjoying the way to get the trophy yeah i moved recently and one of the things that you get a really good sense for when you move if you actually carry the stuff up and downstairs is the volume of stuff that you possess and how that has a cost and how much energy it takes you to move it from place to place so that's something that counts against you keeping it oftentimes when's the last time i used this item is this item something that is of utility to me on a regular basis or am i holding on to this unnecessarily So before our last move, my wife reminded me of a a good mental task to be doing when deciding whether or not you want to keep something. Uh, It's just asking yourself, if this were to be lost, would you buy it again? And the Mm -hmm. answer to that mostly being no, you get rid of a lot of stuff. Like there's not many things I own that I couldn't live without. Yeah, there are the daily living slots, you would say, too, like utility items. You're going to want a can opener. You're going to want some scissors and a knife and some adhesive stuff like tape. You're going to want a way to measure things. You're going to want all these different like basic aspects. But yeah, a lot of stuff we collect and possess, but it doesn't do anything. So you're aware that you just described the Swiss Army knife, are you? Yeah. (laughs) I guess I'm preaching to the choir here. Multi-tools. You want want one Swiss army knife? If you you got rid of all these things, if you got rid of these 10 things, is there one thing that could replace it? Yeah. Um, Yeah, if I threw out my physical copy of Final Fantasy VII, I'd definitely buy it again. Then again, I have about three copies, so I'm not sure whether or not one more or less would really hurt me. And I have no means to play it anymore, but when it comes to Final Fantasy games, yeah, I'm, I'm quite the collector. But other than that, I'm good. But I, I like that really specific question. Where were we? Something bat related, I assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
It's just I have way too many tabs open. Um, if you close this tab, would you type in the URL to open it again? <laughs> That's an interesting, like, uh, it's a digital inventory management aspect where it's kind of like we can encumber ourselves with the way that we have stuff on our devices now, where it's not directly physical in the sense that you can pick it up and carry it around, but it does take up space on hard drives or in your browser and on your screen. Yeah, so the, the particular one I'm talking about is the most important one we talk about. So I definitely open that one up again. But yeah, it's a really interesting question that we we tend to open up a lot of tabs and never really get to look at them again, but still feel bad when we, we close the browser and it, it can't restore all the tabs again. But I guess this nothing is really lost in the internet. So if, if you're really interested in that subject, you'll find that site again and you can read it up afterwards then again since you opened the tab but never really looked at it it probably wasn't as important to you so just better to just let it go um, there would be no advantage in providing security against our fellow humans so long as we were alarmed by occurrences over our heads or beneath the earths or in general by whatever happens in the boundless universe so we, we don't have to fear others and we don't have to protect ourselves against others as long as there's means of alarming us when something is happening. So we can kind of um, take a step back, hide in the nice little garden we, we set up and just let things pass. So this again has to do with um, what you want to preoccupy your mind with. If you're scared of your fellow human beings, you're not doing yourself a service by doing so. So better just be cautious and how you deal with them, but not be overly um, protective of yourself. Yeah, don't, don't get over defensive everybody about the dangers around you. Just call Rohan if you ever need some aid, just light the beacons, okay? I didn't get that reference. Lord of the Rings. You seen those? Read the books? Okay, so basically the meme, like if you haven't heard of it before, there's two major cities that men control in Middle Earth. One of them is Gondor, which is like the more... Uh, it's kind of run down at this point, but it was one of the greatest cities of men. And then there's Rohan, which are kind of the horse people. They're kind of Viking-ish in a way. And uh, there are a set of beacons that are lit one to the other where it's set as far away as possible, but close enough that the next closest beacon can see it from there. So even yeah. though the two cities are very far apart, they just light the series of beacons so they can communicate distress to each other. Yeah, I, I remember now. I was just, I didn't get the reference at first. It's been a while since I watched a Red Lord of the Rings. And yeah, Some as we stuff. talked about that, I'm really upset by the the org site not being properly represented. And they're yeah. just being the, the scapegoat for everyone. <laughs> yeah, it kind of fits a little bit in the slot of it's really hard to get people to unite unless you can get them to rally around a common 
enemy or point of struggle. So the orcs are in that sense used as more of that device rather than their own thinking, uh, almost human creature that deserves its own rights and whatnot. They are dehumanized by, by nature in the way that he wrote them in, which I think simplifies a lot of things. It would be kind of weird if during the battles you weren't like cheering for the humans and the elves and the hobbits, you were like, I don't know. It's just the battle speeches wouldn't really work the same way. You'd be like, ah, but I don't know. Should we be doing this? People were just like wrestling with reservations the entire time. And we'll make it a bit more natural, though, because it's it's easy to dehumanize another group, but it, it's hard to do so absolutely because there's always a human aspect to them. They're having shared humanity after all. Nature's wealth at once has its bounds and is easy to procure, but the wealth of vain fancies uh, recedes to an infinite distance. So, nature will provide for everything we need, but not for everything we desire. So you can desire a lot of things that will you cannot get naturally, but if you um, take your desires back and just look at it on what you actually need, nature will provide for you. I guess um, that doesn't work as well if you live in the desert. But other than mm. that, you should be fine. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that a lot of those nature will provide quotes are coming from people who live in some fertile region where there's some population and civilization and all that kind of stuff. So there is that uh, context problem of you're speaking about this from a river delta right now, but if someone was like in some desolate mountain range, nature is not going to provide you're just you're going to die if you stay there. So you should move. Well, historically, humans only settled where it was fertile. And building cities in the middle of the desert was a stupid idea back then. And it still kind of is a stupid idea nowadays. Like, there's better places to build cities, which would necessitate less um, infrastructural buildings to get water there and just to, to get all the necessities there you need for a city. So it, it's still better to to build your city where it has the, or at least some of the resources you need for life, which are just not there in the desert. Then again, Las Vegas is kind of nice. <laughs> I have not been. You have not been? Nope. Well, I went to the airport for an hour layover. Does that count? Mm, is that the Vegas experience? I went into the airport and I lied down for a while next to the gate. And then when they said that boarding is ready, then I stood up in line and then I got on the plane. I remember there still being slot machines at the airport. So you get some amount of the um, Vegas experience. Um, I've been there twice, once with 12 friends which was a rough experience. We had to do a whole lot of drinking in order to to get through that week. 
and the other time when traveling with my wife, which was a lot more pleasant. You get into all, like when we were 12 friends, we always paid a lot of entry fees to get into the clubs and whatnot. And when traveling with my wife, we got invited into all the clubs because if you have someone that comes or a female that comes with you, it's a lot easier to get in there. Mm. But Las Vegas itself was really interesting to me because it's a completely warped reality there it's like the pursuit of money is really on everyone's um like uh, everyone's just after that making money and getting that big win they were looking for and it's it's really interesting more money more lights more shows more drinks And everything you do in Vegas kind of happens through the hotel lobby, which means through the gambling area. So I remember um, we woke up probably sometime in the afternoon and wanted to go down for a coffee. And then you see a bunch of people, like you're standing on the casino floor and you see a, a bunch of people waiting in line to get coffee. So we decided to to better sit down at a, a slot machine and wait it out so because we didn't want to stand in line. And you put a small amount of money in, gamble a bit, and then you have um, someone show up and asking you for a drink. And we were like, yeah, we're winning. Let's go for rum and coke. That's the kind of warped reality that um, Vegas presents you with, where you you on this constant high, and you, you you do a lot more drinking than is good for you, and you probably spend a lot more money than you wanted to. You heard it here, folks. If you're going to Vegas, you should set a budget for yourself. Understand what your limits are, and don't go past those. Use the buddy system to make sure you're held accountable for these goals and you don't get excessive and then regret it later. <laughs> well said. But yeah, I, I did really enjoy it there. It's quite interesting to just view the people and how they pursue what they're doing. It's weird. That It does, I think, point toward an interesting aspect of self-awareness, which is what are you vulnerable to in terms of vices and whatnot? Because it's not going to be equal for any given person. Some stuff just, it really gets them going. And for other people, it's just, they don't even care. For me, gambling isn't really attractive at all. Like putting money in for the chance of winning stuff. I took a judgments and decision class and it just makes me sad thinking that people do that. So... <laughs> It doesn't really tempt me to like, oh, maybe we're going to win. It's like, this is just a terrible bet. Like, this is a really bad bet. It's stacked toward the house. If it wasn't stacked toward the house, they couldn't afford this big fancy house. People wouldn't come here anymore. So, <laughs> yeah, understanding yourself and also uh, communicating that, I think, with your friends and stuff. So they don't really uh, push you in the direction of your weaknesses. They can protect you. Yeah, I don't have uh, a problem with gambling. Like, I'm not really addicted to it because it's, yeah, I, I see why it's not a good pursuit. Um, then again, I do like to gamble. Like, it's, I think there's joy in just making stupid decisions if you're aware of making a stupid decision. 
And especially I like playing poker with my friends because I think it's a really nice social event and I don't really care about the money I win or lose. Mm. Then again, we're, we're not... Um, there's not huge amounts of money that go over the table when we play with friends. Yeah, for some poker stuff, speaking from my personal experience, poker is effectively gambling for basically everyone unless you have expert knowledge and understand how the game works and have a strategy and a plan. Like, a worse player can beat a better player in the short term, but that's going to be a pretty rare thing. The long-term better player is going to be winning a huge amount of money against a worse player. So because poker in the short term can favor the mistake as opposed to the correct play, people get confused and think that they have a good chance at winning poker or that they're good at poker, which is false. If you actually wanted to demonstrate that you're good at it, you would want to be doing that over tens of thousands of hands as opposed to a night at the poker table. Yeah, and it's sometimes weird to play with friends. I used to play a lot with my brother, so I know almost all his tells. So I always know when he has a strong hand or when he has a weak hand, depending on how he plays. And with some of my other friends, they only show up occasionally, so you don't know what they're doing. And it can be really weird where you where they're trying to bluff you and you really feel like they have a strong hand and other times that they they seem like they have a strong hand but really have nothing. So it's really difficult to get that kind of tell out of people. But I find it really interesting just from that perspective to trying to read people and what they're doing and what their decision makings are. Then again, I tend to think that some of my friends don't really have a decision making process, which makes them especially hard to read. Yeah, that's when you usually play the ranges of cards, which is more of what I studied. With online poker, you have no physical tells. You only have betting lines that you've read, which is just the numbers. And you can develop player profiles in a much more mathematically rigorous way. Uh, whenever you play a hand of poker, it saves a text file to your computer of that hand, all the different betting behavior of each player. So you use a program that basically tracks each individual player, and I would mark them and even color code them so I could keep track of who's good at the table and I want to try to avoid them, who's loose, who's tight, who's aggressive. And you can think through the decisions in a more informed way by understanding the opponents that you're faced with and how to counter their styles. Yeah. On today's episode of Epicurus's Butt Playing Poker... <laughs> Uh, that was the door. Um, Vegas. There's spots in Vegas too, I've heard. Um, the same conviction which inspires confidence that nothing we have to fear is eternal or not or even of long duration also enables us to see even in our limited conditions of life, nothing enhances our security so much as friendship. 
Yeah, so this is one of the other things he really preaches, which is the value of your life comes from the people you surround yourself with. Having good friends will enrich your life more so than any other thing could ever do. So putting a lot of effort into friendship and being a good friend yourself is really important. And that's why you want to take walks in the garden with your friends in order to to facilitate that kind of good connection with each other. And he talked lengths about what it means to be a good friend and how to, to realize whether or not someone is good for you or not. And really the, the emphasis on friendship is really big in Epicurean, um, in the Epicurean way of thinking, which um, We'll talk about a bit later when we talk about what, what kind of influence uh, Epicurus had on society and on how people live their life. Friendship is an interesting uh, concept, especially in the modern context of friend lists and online social media. Uh, acquaintances and friends can sometimes be conflated but I think having a open mindset toward friendship is really valuable because I've seen some people have a very closed mindset where I will only call you my friend if you meet these requirements and it makes it feel kind of cold and structured in a way that isn't at least my preference personally. But at the same time, friendship in the really valuable sense means that you're willing to sacrifice some of your time and energy and emotional availability for that of someone else, which is a big deal. And you would want to choose those people carefully. Yeah. Yeah. I think that with the kind of, the way we have friends on Facebook, for example, or on any other uh, social platform, um, it's nice to have those kind of people, but they're no substitute for real physical friendship, people that you live close by and that kind of um, will hug you if you need it or will will tell you you're an idiot when you need it. Um, people that are really involved with your life and know of you and about you and will give you good advice, which is, a kind of relationship you, you can't really get over the internet, or at least I've never experienced it. It's more difficult too. I think conversation can still be had over the internet. You don't have the face-to-face -face and the physical contact, but you can still have that accountability and conversation and things. Yeah, I see it as a lot more difficult to have good conversation um, when you're not um, sitting directly next to the person like it the, the way we do it here um, kind of could serve as a substitute but I don't know how often people get into real conversations online like where it's not just a um, there's a, an interesting distinction between um, transactional and transformational conversation so transactional just being um, when you go to the Starbucks counter and ask for a coffee, you get a coffee, then you walk out. 
and transformational uh, conversation where it what the other person is saying and what your responses are will make a change for you. It will transform you in, in some regard. And having transformational um, conversation over the internet seems really difficult to me because for the most part, we're just yelling at each other and calling each other names and there's no transformation to be found in that. Or, or to, to put it in terms of a bot, I will not feel as I am a bot just because you call me a bot. <laughs> Bringing it back to the butt on today's episode of The Voice of Neurophilosophy with Eche Fatum. Let's go. Yeah, so I, I, people disagree with this in chat, which is fair. It's not something I've experienced, so I'm, I'm not, I don't want to rule it out. But for me, I find it especially difficult if you don't have a person physically next to you to, to have that deep kind of conversation. Yeah, certain people are also more or less connected to the physical aspects of conversation. Not that you're touching the person, but the way that you have facial expressions and they express themselves, the way you gesticulate, move your hands and your posture and things like that. Those can communicate a lot of our conversational elements uh, beyond just using words. And I think that's one of the main ways people can make mistakes in Twitch chat and having jokes that kind of flop is you can't always articulate the same like uh, level of nuance we use emotes as a sort of structure to try to accomplish that it's not quite perfect i think it's better than not having emotes so uh, blessed are the emotes but yeah there is something to be said about the face-to-face -face, i think yeah and one interesting thing about emotes that i've noticed is when someone uses a particular emote a lot you kind of start to think of that emote being their face in a warped sense, which kind of works nice with your emotes, I guess, or at least for mm -hmm. you. Um, but yeah, you tend to, to, to think of a person in terms of the emotes they use, which is something really interesting because we really long for that kind of um, face-to-face -face connection where we can read so someone's mimic and what they're trying to tell um, not just verbally but with with all the other physical aspects yep an example that comes to mind is egoistic lily i know the emotes she uses she's got a lot of bee hype she's got the uh, penguin emotes and as a Twitch chatter, you can be pretty expressive with those and convey your mood and response to stuff without necessarily having the like visual cue of the person. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of Lily too, and she, she looks like an excited bee. I'm quite sure about it. Yep. <laughs> Um, the just person enjoys the greatest peace of mind while the unjust is full of utmost um, disquietude. Which probably means um, not being able to, or unrestfulness. Never heard that word before. 
and it has quiet in there, so it's not quiet. I think that almost sounds like what I was saying before of uh, living poorly means it's harder to live with yourself, mentally speaking. There's more noise in your head bouncing around of, yeah. oh, I know I shouldn't have done that. That's bad. It's going to come around and bite me in the ass. <laughs> Now, I think this also comes down to kind of mental capacity and not everyone is equally um, attuned to um, social norms, to put it mildly. So um, acting badly will not have the same effect on one's mental state. Uh, like it varies from person to person. Some people actually feel good about doing shitty stuff on the internet, for example. And yeah, it's important to be able to live with yourself, but that means different things to different people. Yeah, we've got the Alfred quote from Batman. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I don't think everyone has the same desire to live a good life and do well in the world. So sometimes you can make the argument of, well, you should do these things because you'll feel better about yourself. It does seem like some people don't really have as high of a premium on that uh, for one reason or another. I'm not an expert on understanding different people's mindsets and how a moral compass is formed and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it would be nice if everyone had a high premium on a moral and ethical life, but it seems like it's not quite across the board. Yeah, yeah that's something that almost or a lot of philosophers turn to um is to to make a kind of rule set that would work for everyone but this is really difficult to do and we never really achieve this it's also very prevalent in religion where they try to to force all of us into this same understanding of what is good or bad and it tends to have the effect that a lot of people will follow while some people will definitely not follow and I think it's impossible to, to get a rule set that works for everyone, but we have to do the best to get a rule set that will work for most people. And I don't think we're doing too terribly at that. I think we're pretty much a stable society for the most part, and there's always some bad things on both sides of the spectrum, but we're, we're walking the middle path quite nicely in my opinion I'm trying to have the best sense of what's going on with all the information that's available and more information is available than ever so if we make the wrong decision well we have the least number of excuses Um, if you fight against all your sensations, you will have no standard to which to refer and thus no means of judging even those judgments which you pronounce false. So um, this is an argument against pure reason, which was Plato's school of thought, um, and an argument for 
Aristotle's way of thinking, where sensations are important, where you you want to look at cause and effect more so than just pure reason. And he's basically saying that um, reason is important, but the sensations also, because the sensations will give you kind of the the tools to reason with your own judgment. So it, it's the combination of the two that will make you a, a good person when you try to be reasonable in your approach, but also listen to what you're feeling about them or how you're feeling about them. Seems like the old, is it A or B? Well, it's both. Oh boy. It was a trick question all along. I think this is one of the main problems that philosophy has is it's for the most part not providing you with one answer but with a bunch of answers and people really like one clear answer to a question and not just well it could be A or B or the whole range from A to Z so it, it's not something that we're equipped to deal with very nicely. Oh yeah, Camacho dropped the it depends. It depends is one of the really, really standard answers to questions that you get, whether it's a StarCraft question or a life question. Someone will ask a question in a very innocent way where they, they want to know the answer and they mean well. What they don't know is that the question has a lot of complexity and depth to it. And by asking it, they've basically just pointed to a a large labyrinth of trying to figure out what's going on, which is, involves a bunch of work and potentially gaining experience and knowledge and all this. So sometimes when people ask a StarCraft question, you give them both the labyrinth and say, well, it's really complicated and these are all the factors that you have to consider. But what I think you're looking for is a, a general direction to go in. So I kind of like point and say, well, probably 60 drones of Roach Queen. <laughs> Try that to start if you don't really care about getting into the weeds. Yeah. yeah. When I get um, asked philosophical questions, I try to point out different views on um, how different people looked at this problem and how they would solve it and how there's a whole range of things you could do and then go, well, but I'll t I would go this way just to, to give them kind of a sense of what they could do from my perspective. Because we, while we're capable of, of having an understanding of there being a lot of nuances and a lot of different ways you could approach it, at some point you have to decide and go, well, this is the direction I want to take. Because if you're not taking a direction, you'll be just be standing still and nothing will happen. Or randomness will happen, which is arguably even worse. Unless you worship the chaos gods, in which case randomness is the best. I find it interesting to look at fate 
the, the way it was seen um, historically and randomness and kind of compare them to each other. And I think they're basically the same concept, but one just um, puts some emphasis on um, there being a teleology to it. So it, it, it goes someplace, which is obviously randomness. We just got a nice raid from Kyobi Wolf. Also got another one from Apoptosis. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We're in a philosophy discussion with Ece Fatum. He is a regular guest on the stream. We're talking about Epicurus, epistemology, and butts. And you might be like, wait, what? Why butts? We took a vote in the philosophy channel of the Discord about what people wanted to talk about, and it being the internet and people being... Uh, hilarious they voted for butts and it won the vote by a massive margin like a huge margin i'm actually kind of in awe of the size of this margin but yeah we we've been rolling with it we've been trying to weave butts into the conversation wherever it's appropriate and try not to break tos which is a a pretty delicate process you got to be really careful about that there's only a certain amount of butts that will um, can make it onto the internet, which arguably is quite a lot. <laughs> um, um, those animals which are incapable of making um, covenants with one another to the end they may neither inflict uh, inflict nor suffer harm are without either justice or injustice and those tribes with either, which either could not or would not form mutual covenants to the same end are in like case so basically if animals fight each other it's not their fault they're just animals if a tiger goes and tackles a deer or whatever tigers eat what do tigers hunt i have animal questions that is not a morally reprehensible thing that is the circle of life is that what he's saying yeah basically nice but it's also, the lion king but also that there are animals that are capable when you just of hear a really complex covenants. philosophical exposition and you raise your hand quietly in the back of the classroom and say um yes what? is the answer lion king Yes. Yeah, but he's also saying that there are animals which are capable of this and that there is um, a sense of morality within packed animals as well. So it's not just a human invention, but social conventions are um, as natural as they can be because as soon as you get into some kind of social tribe, there ought to be convention that make life um, easier on everyone um, within the social group. Yeah, I'm aware that quite a few varieties of monkeys and ape species understand fairness and cheating and theft. So certain times a, a member of the group will gather a certain item and that involves work and they remember that they gather that item and if someone takes that, that is theft and there are usually repercussions and they kind of work against them so yeah in that sense the social awareness of 
wrongdoing is it's not exclusive to humans yeah there's a really funny video of two monkeys having to do the same thing but getting different rewards for it so i'm not quite sure what the rewards were i think one got something that was really desirable like a fig and the other one got just something bland that was kind of nice to get the first time around but then he saw the other monkey getting the fig for doing the same thing and he got really upset and was throwing the thing he got back at the um the trainer it's super funny so they have the 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 same kind of sense of um social justice in terms of um same work same reward which is rather interesting Why did he get a fig, but I got broccoli? This is bullshit, said the monkey. <laughs> exactly. Uh, natural justice is a symbol of expression of usefulness to prevent one person from harming or being harmed by another. So justice as like he, he argues that there is no such thing as good as bad. Hence, there is no such thing as overarching justice. But the notion of justice is here to, to prevent ourselves ourselves from harming others or from being harmed by others. So it's an important notion, but it's not absolute. Yeah, I think that raises the, the question of the functional and practical application of having systems of justice. Like the purpose of something is a really key driver for the pursuit of bettering that process. So legal systems, court systems, stuff like that, it kind of fits with what we were talking about with regards to pursuing the reward for something as opposed to the process. If you understand the purpose for it, that's going to be stronger than an individual outcome would be. The pursuit of justice is something that we work toward and have worked toward for a very long time. We want to have fair laws. We want to have uh, fair legal proceedings for everyone. We want people to be appropriately rewarded and punished for what goes on as well. One thing's to be transparent. It's pretty tough and it's expensive. Oh yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, but bureaucracy was probably one of our greatest inventions. Also one of the most terrible ones. Um, we just, we, we made this huge systems that everything has to go through in order to be um, right by the, the standards the society has set. And there's a lot of good in this. There's also a lot of pain in this. So it's it's one of those things we came up with that we, we think, is it really necessary? And yes, it is, because otherwise there'd just be tyranny. There, there'd be randomness in our... Um, legal decision making so it's important but then again it is a huge pain 
It is important to control for this randomness with structures and rules and paperwork. Huge mountains of paperwork and stamps. Signatures, things should be notarized. You cut out for a little bit, so I covered for you. We're good. All right. Um, he who best knew how to meet fear of external foes made it into one family. All of the creatures he could and those he could not, he at any rate did not treat as aliens. And where he found this impossible, he avoided all association. And so far he was useful, kept kept them uh, as so far as they were useful, he kept them at a distance. So this is directly addressing the notion of dehumanizing. So those that are useful and good for you, you keep them close, you make them into one big family. Those um, that don't um, that you don't count into your in-group, you don't treat them as aliens and you should keep them close as long as they are useful which is a bit um problematic when you just keep people around because they are useful but the important notion here is to not alienate those you do not associate with what was the there's a book that's been recommended to me a whole bunch and i think i read some of it, but I didn't really like the format and presentation of it. If other people have enjoyed it, that's fine. I think it's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I know that one. Yeah, it put a really bad taste in my mouth because it kind of made it uh, seem like it was all about your uh, objectives and people were means to an end as opposed to people are rich instances of personhood and like nuance and beauty on their own and that you don't really win a friend you build a friendship with the person that is supposed to be a two-way street where both parties benefit and look after each other and it's that kind of shared goal as opposed to how can i trick this person into doing shit for me which is kind of what it <laughs> sounded like some of the time it definitely sounds like that and uh I had the same feeling when reading it that it's really manipulative and that it's weird to, to treat people as a means, as he was suggesting. On the other hand, it had some really practical advice on how to to get to know people and how to um, get people to like you, which is yeah something we tend to overthink on what do I need to do in order for people to like me. Um, and he, he states that it's it's not it's more so how you treat them than what you tell them. It's more so how you listen to them than what you tell them. Like there's a bunch of interesting stuff in there, but I agree with your reading of it that there's some rather weird notions in that book. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, this was a good part of the core teachings of um, Epicureanism. So it, it's really the emphasis on figuring out what's good for you and making it in a social way. So you're 
a good friend to people you're a decent human being overall and putting the emphasis on what's important in life as um, minimizing the pain you have and having good friends that will enrich your life and being thoughtful about what you want and why you want it and what it will cost you to get there. And out of this teachings um, was a lot of development over the years. Um, a lot of other philosophical schools kind of um, originate with, with those kind of instincts. Um, Stoicism being a big example, they disagreed a lot with the Epicureans, but they also agreed a lot on the core teachings, which is what to value in life. Um, there's um, influence in more modern philosophy, um, for example, the notion of God being that that Nietzsche talked about was heavily influenced by Epicurus. Um, and all of the... Yeah, we'll talk about Nietzsche at some point. That is actually Fatim's favorite philosopher. Hello, hello. Am I back? You're back. Nice. Coming um, at you from the Swiss Alps. And also a lot of the, the modern socialist movement, starting with Marx, was heavily influenced by Epicurean teachings and uh, how it has developed later on. And one interesting thing is um, communities. So Epicurus, um, he preached that in order to live a really good life, you want to live nice and quietly somewhere where your neighbors can't disturb you because you don't have any neighbors. Um, you want to have the basic necessities of life, enough food, but you, you want to have your friends around because there's no better thing than just um, having your quiet time, but when you choose to be social, to have people around to talk with. Uh, that's something really nice in the modern age um, where we have the internet and someone like you that streams almost all the time, um, you can always come back here, get into chat and be in this kind of community where you have people to talk to. Yeah, some really of the best nice. things about Twitch. Yeah, I think the format of a WoW guild fills a similar slot that's been around for a bit longer. You can say that for EverQuest or other multiplayer games too, where sometimes people play it because they love the game. A lot of people, I think, play games because it gives them people to hang out with who have similar interests and they can just be social and have a good time. That's one of the aspects, if you think about uh, having zoo animals such as monkeys, you don't just get a monkey and put it into an enclosure. It'll just be super sad all the time because it is evolved to be with a bunch of friends who they can hang out with and socialize with and work together on stuff. So humans are no different in that capacity. If we don't have support and fellowship and camaraderie and things like that, we will similarly be pretty sad and down and out of it. So you've got Twitch streams, interact with people, you've got guilds and stuff. You can join people who have like minds and similar interests. You can also go outside and meet real people in the real world. Wait, what? 
It's true. Yeah. The real world is kind of scary, though. You, you don't have um, memes and emotes to hide behind. So better be safe and stay on your couch and just listen to Twitch streams. Yeah, so one of the big influences he had was on this kind of um, social gathering type. Um, a lot of the uh, monasteries used to um, originate out of this um, Epicurean idea of just having a bunch of people living together and being able to um, share thoughts and ideas and just have this kind of community where you have like-minded people and be able to have conversation whenever it pleases you. And with the right, the rise of the um, Catholic Church, they wanted to get rid of some of the Epicurean influence to it. So that's why monasteries, as we now see them historically arose but in essence they were epicurean communities of people wanting to to live a a tranquil life together which is really nice and i think in, in some sense we're kind of returning to that um another interesting thing is the um the social movement during the 1960s which also had that kind of Epicurean notions of um, let's all be happy and peaceful with each other. And this is also heavily influenced by his teachings since he was the, the first one that brought those notions into the Western canon of philosophy. Who was the scientist who did a bunch of important work on genetics? Who was a, I believe he was a monk at a monastery and he did gardening kind of stuff, which sounds very Epicurean to me. And he basically made major breakthroughs in understanding, uh, what is it? Phonemes and morphemes. What is that? The difference between a, a phenotype and a genotype. That's what it is. Is it uh, Mendel? Is that his name? Uh... Mengel or is it Mendel? I think it's Mendel, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Mendel. I think a lot of creativity can spring from that, from a a tranquil state of mind. Because it seems like a chaotic state of mind, you have to basically juggle the thoughts that are bouncing around in your head. Whereas if you can build some stability for yourself, that creates more room for something to originate from you that's uniquely your own yeah yeah there's like having everything taken care for you like when you're living in such a community where um you take turns cooking you take turns cleaning and you have like a really sordid kind of lifestyle uh, has a lot of benefits when it comes to just um being able to think and being able to 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 order your own thoughts and to to make good um, science or good philosophy for that matter where it's just when when everything else is taken care of you can really focus on what's important Mm -hmm. which is interesting my wife sent me a kind of infographic on habits of different 
influential influential people and what kind of what their daily habits look like and one thing that really um, goes through the whole thing is like the amount of time they had to put into making ends meet and the, the amount of time they had to to work on their life's work and the more they had to put in into um, making ends meet was not taking away from doing what they wanted to do it was for the most part taking away from the amount they could sleep mm, yeah and also coffee intake <laughs> go 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 I think that that'd be another really interesting subject for a philosophy talk, like the, the influence coffee had on modern society, because a lot of the thinkers we know nowadays would be nothing if it were not for coffee. Yeah, just as a note, coffee is not something that per se gives you energy. It basically tricks your brain into not realizing how tired it truly is. <laughs> so it does allow you to push forward basically by uh, that kind of illusion. Oh no, everything is fine. I feel I feel energized. No, nope, you're just blocking the part of your brain that says we are tired. We need rest. No, you stop it. This is a tasty beverage, and it's nice and warm, and I'm invigorated. I'm ready to philosophize. Yeah, and yeah, I agree with coffee not giving you energy then again you have people like Kierkegaard who drank his coffee in a manner that he piled the sugar um, that it would pile up on top of the coffee so you, ha you pour sugar into it until you see sugar coming over the liquid surface of the coffee and I guess there's a bunch of energy in that sure yeah there's also cavities and toothaches <laughs> All right, Pat, how do you end Eche Fatum? How do you take your coffee? Just a fun poll. Um, I, when I usually drink my coffee, I drink it with a bit of sugar, but I drink a lot of coffee in a lot of different places, and I don't mind milk in it. I don't mind drinking it all black. It, it, it always depends on the mood. It's, it's not something that could be one or the other. So I like almost every kind of coffee. On that note, I did really not enjoy coffee in the United States. Uh, did you go to Seattle though? No. We have there, all there, kinds of good coffee here. Uh, I'm not saying all the coffee was bad, but like the usual coffee you get at uh, Starbucks, for example, is really not to my liking. But there's some small coffee places that have awesome coffee as well and the best coffee i ever got was in brazil nice i think there are lots of different kinds that are good to me egyptian coffee is really good it's super super strong and it's also kind of on the sweet side for my daily drink it's the bass the rock the mic the treble you know yeah i'm kind of a black metal guy so <laughs> not having anything in that uh one interesting I think thing the about things coffee, in it the what sorry it's kind of weird what when it turns you off so i think i need to talk and then you're already talking and yeah um the one thing i learned about coffee or about my coffee habits is my wife at some point pointed out that i'm 
I tend to not get any sleep or I tend to go to bed way too late if I had coffee after like 5 in the afternoon which I was dismissing at first but then realized there's definitely something to it so if I have caffeine in the evening I'll, I'll be awake for way too long so I started drinking decaf in the evening mm -hmm. yeah I think the half-life of it is something like eight hours so it can be a pretty big impact getting opinions from other people about your sleep habits can be interesting because I think there's like a different mode of a person when they're either asleep or near sleep either about to go to sleep or waking up where you're not fully yourself yet you're kind of a sleepy monster and the sleepy monster's goal is to sleep as much as possible because sleep is great right yeah so a lot of times we have those elements of bias where we say no i'm not like that but is the sleepy monster within yourself like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i totally agree especially when waking up it takes me like half an hour to to become myself again and uh, during that time i'll better not be disturbed i tend to not react as nicely as i normally would yeah there was a friend i think the first time i really understood the sleepy monster we had this kid in elementary school and middle school and he was always the class clown just making jokes all the time making people laugh but not in a mean way he never bullied people he just wanted to just make everybody laugh. He's just a great guy. He was very respectful to myself. And whenever he came over to our house and he was very respectful to my parents, addressing them respectfully, taking off his shoes and all this. And we had a sleepover and people are going to sleep and it's time to wake up in the morning and you're going around and waking up all your friends. And he had the meanest grimace. Like he was going to kill everybody there when we woke him up. And it's like, dude, I thought this guy was nice, but he's just a, he's a monster right now. And I was like, well, maybe some people when they're asleep, they're not uh, carrying all their manner and respect and stuff like that yet. It, he's just in his sleepy bear state. Don't mess with him, dude. He is a grumpy sleeper. <laughs> The, the whole notion of shutting off consciousness in order to get to sleep is really weird, where it, it really shows the, the mind-body duality, where you're not yourself when you're sleeping, but then again you are. And this kind of transition periods where you're half awake, half asleep, is, is a weird time for the... Um, for your mind to get a sort yourself again and to to become who you are um, every day over. Yeah, I would probably argue that you are a more primal version of yourself when you're asleep or around that period. Less of the conditioning of modern life of how you should behave and speak and act is uh, being registered. It's more about the base physiological process of I will defend my rest. That is my priority. I think bears understand that, wolves understand it, lots of other animals def understand defending your rest. So when you say we're a more primal version, you're saying that we're in more of a need of butts when we're asleep than when we're awake? Exactly. Or at least uh, less mindful about that pursuit. But we're also less mobile when we're asleep. Unless you're like an expert sleepwalker, which 
I don't really do that. Does anyone sleepwalk? I kind of half sleepwalk when I'm really drunk, where I just automatedly go to the toilet and then find my way back to a bed, not necessarily the one I was sleeping in before. But I have to be really drunk for that. Mm -hmm. Well, to give a little biology note, memory consolidation gets disrupted. You know, people say blackout drunk. Uh, you don't have to like pass out on the spot. A lot of times you're uh, saving of memory from your short term to medium term to long term isn't quite as solid as it usually is. So in the moment, you may have made a decision that made sense to you at the time, but you don't really remember making that decision or why after the fact. And you just kind of wake up somewhere and you're like, eh? So use the buddy system, ladies and gentlemen. Get a ride share if you're really messed up. Don't operate a motor vehicle or heavy machinery. Play it safe. Just think about the stupidest thing you could do and then don't do that. And also the second <laughs> stupidest thing. That's a really good rule to go by. All right, we've got demands in the chat for a drunk Eche Fatum philosophy discussion. Well, in all fairness, I've been... Now that we're doing them in the morning, I'm not drinking, but when we were doing them in the evening, I was usually drinking gin and tonic. But if I drink too much, I slander my words even more than I do now. So a bit tipsy philosophy can be good. Drunk philosophy will not work out. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but yeah, I find it interesting how people change when they're drunk. Like there's a couple of different modes that different people have to um, behave differently when drunk. So there's some people that are really restricting themselves in a social sense. This is usually uh, the boss at an office that is just um, very strict in his behavior and is this um, the kind of guy you, you know how he will behave in, in every um, like with everything he does by looking at him for five minutes. But those are normally the ones that really get um, super weird when they're drunk because they kind of have this um, this lack of this weird kind of social interaction that we usually get when you're not restricting yourself as much. And once they get drunk, they, they become super attached or um, talk way too much. Um, then there's other people that start to get angry when they're drunk. Um, yeah, so there's a, a bunch of different behaviors. And for myself, I get um, more talkative. Um, I tend to talk about the same subject, but it drifts off way more. So it, it really gets to the point where it's just nonsense philosophy and you talk about um, everything in half an hour, which kind of gets you nowhere. And I tend to get sleepy and then just wanting nothing to do with the world and let the, the sleep monster rule. All hail the sleep monster, for it is within each of us. When you are tired and your bed is calling you, that is the sleep monster guiding you to the proper place. 
and yeah as for drinking i tend to um drink every once in a while like I, I really enjoy having a drink in the evening but it's been quite a while since i've been drunk because i don't find that as enjoyable anymore it's it weighs too heavy on you on the next morning and getting older it it, it seems to get harder and harder every time yeah i don't know i've always had bad hangovers like that hasn't been like a thing that has changed with age because uh, if i get really messed up and i drink a whole bunch i can keep myself together until i go to bed and then i go to bed and wake up and just feel terrible for about 12 hours and then i'm fine so yeah oftentimes that's going to be a big factor in weighing in my decision and if i want to work out in the morning and I get really drunk, then it's one of those, you're going to be hurting a lot tomorrow. Is it worth it? There are consequences for your actions. Short-term mind says, yeah, this will be fun. Long-term mind says, is it worth it? Yeah, I, I think it, it's fun to... to to get drunk every once in a while if you have a good group of people it can be really enjoyable to kind of see people at that stage and have different kind of conversation we tend to say that we get more honest honest the more drunk we are so you you get people to open up when they they had a bit more to drink which can be really interesting and a good challenge for um, a friendship and interestingly, in ancient Greek times, they had um, the ancient Greece word for this kind of social gathering for doing philosophy together is a symposium, which is basically everyone getting together to get drunk. So there's definitely some history in getting drunk together in order to, to talk philosophy. Okay, so in the next episode of Voice of Neuro Discussion Philosophy with Eche Fatum, we're going to have a symposium. I've been taking a break. I haven't had any alcohol since I've moved, aside from, what, a family visit or so? It's a thing. If anyone really wants to cut, I know some people ask about, like, toned abs because of my Instagram and stuff. It helps if you cut it if you're trying to get lean i think quite a bit of the alcohol is stored uh, in your body and it's converted to sugar and you store it as fat so if you're like i cut out the soda but then you're having like wine and beer and liquor and stuff well there it is sorry <laughs> yeah i think that the the topic of drinking is also something to just be mindful about there's there's good reason to drink. There's probably even better reasons not to drink, but doing it responsibly, I think is the most important thing. It, it can't be that you're, you need a drink every day. Um, then it's not the drinking that's your problem. It's how you live the rest of your life that makes you want to drink. At least that's my opinion. There's something to be said about drinking as an addiction. And I would, definitely agree with that but it's if you can't change your drinking habits you might want to look at what else is going wrong with your life and change that and maybe that will alleviate some of the need to drink 
Yeah, I would say in the vast majority of cases, drinking is not going to tackle the root of the problem. It's more of a thing that some people use to like treat symptoms, but it's not going to cure anything. Um, there's a saying in German, and I think it's, um, it, it does work uh, as well in English. Uh, it says, uh, alcohol is a solution, but it doesn't solve problems. Ah, uh, yeah. And this is a solution in the chemistry sense of the word. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so that's about everything I have prepared for Confucius. Um, Epicurus? Epicurus, yeah. Confucius. Oh, same thing. Confucius emotes in the chat. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, one. good timing, too. We're at 2 hours, 50 minutes. Yeah, I think I'll be putting another option for people to vote on into uh, Discord. I'm not sure what I will decide on and when I will add that. Um, I will not be talking about about butts um, again soon, so we'll give it a year or so until there's new butt-related philosophy showing up, so we can tackle the the new um, knowledge we have about butts and what the um, social and uh, ethical implications of those that new butt knowledge will be. <coughs> I think we should give it at least a year. Okay, everyone. Go out, research, figure out the world, decide the next topic, but you can't choose butts for the next one. You're going to have to wait a year. Put it on your calendar. That's uh, the beginning of September in 2020. You can vote for butts again. Be patient, everyone. Thanks for your support of this content. Thank you, Eche Fatum, for coming on. Thank you, Cobra Venom, for moving us along with the podcast format. Heckin' Swiss Alp Internet, figure out your shit, please. <laughs> Thank you, chat, for helping out very much with these conversations and being a part of it. I definitely enjoy this. It's a breath of fresh air in my streamer journey. So, yeah, check them out. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. And see you in two weeks, I guess. Yeah, take care, H.D. Patin. And enjoy TwitchCon. Oh, yeah. See you later, dude.